you like, you can be turning to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. It will be my purpose this morning to continue my sermon that I began last week on temptation. And the particular temptation that Joseph faced with Potiphar's wife. If you remember, which I don't normally do, but I did entitle this sermon from our text, An Answer to the Call of Temptation. An Answer to the Call of Temptation. Because temptation does come. Temptation to sin does call us. And what are we to do? How are we to answer back to sin? How are we to answer back to the temptation that comes knocking at our door, whether it be physically or whether it be on the inside, outside, that doesn't matter. The case isn't. It's the same. How do we answer the call to temptation? Is there an answer to temptation? Do we just give in, give up, and just do what sin dictates to us? Or is there an answer that we are to give back to temptation? Well, my intention was, and my intention is, to show that the Bible does direct us to give a firm, resolute answer when temptation of sin or sins does arise. We are to give a firm and resolute answer back to temptation when it does call us to sin. And we discovered what that answer was, or at least an answer. You remember I said there is no one answer to sin. It would take all of the Word of God if we're going to answer every call to temptation. And that's why Jesus said, uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I hope you realize, and we certainly don't teach here, you know, there's a favorite verse you ought to run to, and that's the only verse that's really going to help you. Actually, brethren, while we may all have our favorite verses, it's the whole Word of God that is to be our stand and to be the weapons of our warfare. And so this morning, we want to look again at the answer and answer that is to come when temptation rises. And so we discover that answer, as we said last Lord's Day, the answer that we can give when it lifts up its voice, that is, temptation does, the answer that we ought to give is found in the last part of verse 9 of Genesis 39. Now, you know the context. At least I trust you do. Joseph is down in Egypt. He's been sold into slavery. Here is innocent Joseph, so to speak. He didn't deserve where he's at in that sense. There was no sin that put him there. He has been taken into slavery. He is in the household of Potiphar. He is doing very well. The Lord has blessed him. And thus, Potiphar has had an eye to this. And so, he raises uh, Joseph up to be overseer. And thus, he has the run of the house. He has the freedom within that boundary to do what he needs to do in order to do his job. He comes into contact with Pharaoh's household, very obviously in this chapter. And he comes into contact with Pharaoh, uh, Potiphar's wife, excuse me, his wife. And she wants to commit sin with Joseph. She wants to commit adultery and fornication. 
And so she comes to him and she says, lie with me. And what does Joseph answer? What is the answer that he gives to the call of temptation from this wicked, evil woman? Well, it's found, as I said, in verse 9, the latter part. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is an answer that we ought to give to the call of temptation. Again, it's not the only one. But it's a very strong answer, a very firm answer, a very resolute answer that we ought to give to temptation. When we see it coming, we ought to say very bravely, very boldly, very firmly, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? As we mentioned... And I'm only going to review just very briefly here. We said there were two considerations in this answer. First one is this, the great wickedness. Joseph saw what he was about to do or what he was being tempted to do. Excuse me, he didn't do it actually. He fled the temptation. But what he was being tempted to do by this woman, he considered it a great wickedness. And so we said we just didn't want to look at Joseph's particular temptation, we said this would be true across the board. And what we need to see, brethren, that when temptation comes with sin, we need to recognize that sin, any sin, all sin, is a great wickedness. Now, I I agree with Scripture, obviously. There are degrees of wickedness. There are degrees of sin. But when it comes right down to it, though, when you think about it, sin is sin, and it's very grievous, and it's very wicked. So sin ought to be seen in light of, of, of it being a very great wickedness. And Joseph does so in consideration of that, even in several things. In other words, there were several things that prompted him to do that. To say that very phrase. How can I do this great wickedness? And we showed you last week in the context, it was in light of the privileges that were given to Joseph. How can I sin knowing what your husband has done for me? Under God. Secondly, this woman was his Potiphar's wife. This woman belonged to another man. He did not, this woman did not belong to Joseph. And Joseph recognized this. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. So in consideration that he belonged to, she belonged to someone else, he said, how can I do this great wickedness? And then he took into consideration his master. His master. Potiphar. Whether he liked it or not, Joseph was enslaved to him. This goes back to what we said this morning about no one likes authority, no one likes obedience. Well, Joseph recognized it didn't matter. He was enslaved to Potiphar. And he says, in light of that, how can I do this to my master? 
How can I do this great wickedness considering who it is that I have to deal with? And then the second consideration we said that it was a sin against God. Again, notice the answer. How then can I do this great wickedness? And, here's the second point, and sin against God. And we showed you how that it was against His law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. It was against light. It was against righteousness. It was against all that was holy. It was against God's goodness. And many other properties and characteristics that we can see set forth in God's Word as to why this would be a sin in God's sight. And then I said, is not Joseph's firm and resolute answer very reasonable then in light of these things? God is not requiring something of us, brethren, when we have to say no to sin, no to temptation. God is not requiring something from us that is unreasonable or that is uncalled for. Think of that. Think of that, if you will, please. When God tells us not to sin, and He gives us the warnings to sin, and even what sin is and how we ought to be staying away from it, it's not unreasonable for Him to do so. And I know the world who hates God. I know the unbeliever who has enmity with and against God. I recognize they can't see that. But in reality, Christian, it's you I'm talking to this morning. Think with me a moment. Is it unreasonable in light of these things to say no to sin? Is it such an uncalled for situation with God to His people to say no to sin in light of all the privileges and grace and heaven that's going to be ours someday? Forgiveness of sins, the love of Christ to our souls. Is it unreasonable? In John, uh, Romans, Paul presents it basically this way. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Notice that, and we're going to get into that today. Your bodies. Read it. Bodies. Your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable of you. To give ourselves over to God as living sacrifices that's holy and acceptable to Him is reasonable. It's not against scriptural logic. It's very reasonable. And while there is an answer we need to give to the call of temptation, when temptation arises, and right then we need to say, hey, stop it. It's also well to have this as a mindset. Always be thinking this way. Don't wait until the temptation to sin actually appears to think and say this very thing. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? That should already be in your thinking, Christian. 
If that is your attitude, if that is your heart, if that is, is your resolute con- set of thinking, values, then you will be more apt not to be tripped up when sin does come knocking at your door. It ought to be continually in our thinking. And if we wait for the moment, sin may overtake us, and then it be too quickly, and then too powerful for us. You say, well, here's what I'm going to do. Next time that temptation comes, the moment's there, that's what I'm going to say. Well, you've missed it. But first of all, maybe it'll come too quick and you won't be able to say it. Or maybe it'll be too powerful and you won't even get the words out. So you need to have this on your thinking continually. Now that I didn't say last week. That's why I'm saying it this week. Don't wait. It's true. This is a good thing to to think when it happens. But brethren, be saying it now, so to speak. And that was some other things we saw. And this week, though, I want to consider some other very important factors when it comes to fighting against sin and against the call of temptation. And so these are sort of some strings, uh, using a figure here. These are some strings that I want to bind up or to gather together and gather them up and put them in the right place as we think upon this subject of temptation. Subject of temptation and the call it gives and the answer we ought to be ready to give back to that call. Now, I hope no one here this morning is so foolish to think, well, I don't need to hear this because actually I've kind of arrived at this idea of fighting against temptation, against sin. I mean, I don't need that. So, I think I can take a little mental break during this sermon because when it comes to warring against sin, I'm the expert. I hope no one here this morning is that, can I say it, stupid? That foolishness in light of God's Word to say something like that. And I know the temptation may be there. I mean, after all, I've read Owen on the sin of temptation. After all, I've read Goodwin dealing with that. After all, I've read many Puritans about this idea of temptation and warring against sin. I mean, after all, I'm a pastor. What do I need to be thinking about temptation and how to deal with it? That's foolishness, my friend. Foolishness. You do need to think about it. You better think about it. Or you'll find yourself in the midst of of some of the greatest debauchery and sin you could think of. So we all need this encouragement, don't we? We all need the insights from Scripture to be helped along, to be hoped, as we see in the New Testament. Hoped means helped. So let's begin with some helps in regards to this area. Now again, this is nothing new. Nothing new. These are things that are I have preached before 
These are things you've read about in Scripture. You've probably even read in other books, hopefully, if you do that sort of thing and trying to be helped in other areas of life. So there's nothing new, but I'm trying to put it in this perspective today of saying no to sin. And saying no in a very powerful, effectual way by the grace of God. Not just no and then, well, if I fall into sin, that's just the way it goes. You know, after all, I've got indwelling sin and, you know, I just couldn't help it. That's a wrong, wrong way of looking at it. Indwelling sin was never given for an excuse to sin. It's given for the reason, but it's never given for the excuse. So, first of all, we need to have a serious heart about us. If we're going to say no to sin, and we're going to war against temptation... Now, a lot of you have been in the military here, and so you know something about going through boot camp. Was it a joke? I don't think so, was it? It was very serious. Well, that's why we have to deal with the idea with sin. Our hearts, brethren, have to be serious in us. And by heart, I mean the very being of what we are, of who we are, what we think, how we think, how we act, what we do, what we say, how we react, and how we don't react. Everything about us. That's what I mean when I say the heart. And our hearts then need to be serious. And by a serious heart, I mean this. I'm going to be quoting here something I've written. By a serious heart, I mean a heart which keeps alive a sense of our having an eye of God upon us with a dread of sinning against the Holy One of Israel, a heart purposing and obedience to God, studious to know and to do what the will of God is, and a heart in a proper frame to receive all that God might send our way in His holy providence. Let me repeat that in case you're taking notes. By a serious heart, I mean a heart or a heart which keeps alive a sense of our having an eye of God upon us with a dread of sinning against the Holy One of Israel, our heart purposing an obedience to God, studious to know and to do the will of our Heavenly Father, and a heart in a proper frame to receive all that God might send our way in His holy providence. I could stop there and end the sermon, actually, couldn't I? So really what I'm going to be saying the rest of this hour and probably again next, some more next week is will just be, a, be derived from this fact that we better have a serious heart when it comes to fighting sin. When it comes to being a Christian, we better not be the fool. We better not be court jesters. We better be serious. Because sin is. Sin is very serious against you. The devil is very serious against you. The world is very serious against you. They're not playing games. They're playing for keeps. The world, the flesh, and the devil are not joking around. They're very serious. Now, this lengthy paragraph I gave you, that's nothing 
Nothing less that's defined in Scripture as the fear of God. We need to be walking in the fear of the Lord. And brethren, this we must have, this we must keep, this we must sustain, and this we must cultivate within us. A fear of the Lord that is a serious heart before Him. And the next thing is be watchful over such a heart. I just got through saying, closing in that point there, that we must cultivate it and we must sustain it. So now I'm thinking of that thought. We better be watchful over such a heart. We better guard it. For if we do not, that frame of heart won't stay with us very long. We may start out with some good resolutions. Like we're going to hear come January 1st. All these great resolutions people have about eating less and exercising more and all that stuff you hear out of their mouths the first part of January and by March it's all over. And that's the way sometimes our resolutions can be as Christians. We may start out great, but then they go to nothing. And brethren, if we want to cause it to go on, be more than just a March memory, we better... Start thinking about being watchful over it. Guard our hearts. Guard it with our lives, so to speak. Because that's really what's at stake. It really is. Your very soul, my friend, is at stake. And you can be, you know, we can be asked by the world, why are you so serious about this? Why are you taking the injunctions of God's holy word so serious? I mean, chill out. You know what they say? Don't take it so serious. Don't be so puritanical in your thinking. It's okay. It's okay if you let your guard down here, let your guard down there. And so they'll ask us why we're so serious. You know what our answer ought to be? Because my soul was at stake. I've got a heaven to win and a hell to, to lose, my friend. That's why I take my life so serious. That's why I take God's Word seriously. That's why I will not sin. That's why when temptations come, I will say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But I have to maintain that resolution. I have to maintain that thought process. I have to guard that serious, sober heart. Solomon grabs his son and he says, My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. See, I was right, wasn't I? Our lives are at stake what he says. For they are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. Next verse. So guard it. When you're tempted to say this is too hard, too serious, too rough, know you're in deep trouble. Know that temptation's around the corner. 
knowing your soul was at stake. Thirdly, know in some measure your heart. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Know in some measure your heart. It takes some spiritual wisdom to be able to discern what you're really like. Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So even with Scripture and even with the Holy Spirit and even with all of our devices that we may have to help us to know something of ourselves, take heed. You don't know it all. The only one who really knows your heart and what it really is and what it's really capable of is not you. It's God and God alone. Because that verse I quoted, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse gives us the answer. It's God. God. So, in saying that though, knowing we cannot know the boundary or the depths of our own hearts, no more than when we're commanded to know God, that we can know everything about Him. We can't. But there is this duty then to know what we can. And there are means of doing that. And so that's what I'm saying here this morning. Know in some measure your heart. And by that I mean something like this. Know your particular temptations. Know where you're weak at. Know what makes you stumble so easily. Know whether it's a word out of your mouth, a thought in your head, something you see on billboards, something you hear someone say. Take note of that and stare from that. Keep from it. Know where your dangers lie. Again, thinking of this in a military way because that's how the Bible does. Now, they didn't have landmines in the Old Testament or the New Testament. But if you were walking out on a field and you knew there were landmines out there, and if you were to step on it, you could either lose your leg or your whole body, how would you walk? Would you just be prancing along, head in the air, not caring where you stepped? Because it may be your last? Well, unless you're a fool who's wanting to end it all, you'll be careful, won't you? You will know the territory. And that's what we need to know. We need to know our hearts. We need to know the territory. We need to know the weaknesses that we have. We know the need to know the, the strengths of our enemy, sin. And then also know this. I, I find this, people find this very surprising. I'm surprised that people are surprised about this. Know too that your temptations and your heart to be tempted will change. New ones will come along. That which at one time you thought you would never do. Never be caught thinking. Never be caught saying. Never be caught in the middle of. Never be tempted by it. You find it to be very suddenly and very powerfully at your doorstep. But a year ago, six months ago, Perhaps even yesterday. You know, bah, that'll never bother me. And then here it comes. Knocking. That's why the Scripture says, take heed to those of us who think we've got it all under our belts. 
Know those things that can trigger your particular temptations. You all have them. I have them. There are things that bother me that obviously doesn't bother a lot of people or even bother you here this morning. But boy, they bother me. I know something of my weakness to know I better not be near them. I better not be thinking about it. I better not be meditating on it, pondering it, doing it. Those are my triggers that I have to be careful with. Another one. I was going to number these, but I always get my numbering off. and So I'll just call this another one. If you're numbering, it is number four. Though. Deal seriously with sin. Now, we talked about earlier having a serious heart. Now I want us to deal seriously with sin. And as we said, it's not a game. There are real and eternal issues at stake. And what I want us to get across here at this point is to view every and each sin as the as I heard this weekend, the pathway to hell. Because it is. Saved by God's grace. Each and every sin is the pathway to hell. And if sin had its way, it would take you down to eternal ruin. Sin is no friend to the Christian. It ought to be that which we hate. I realize in the Christian vocabulary, growing up, you don't hate anything. Well, that's a lie. You better hate sin. It better not be your friend. Satan better not be your buddy. The world better not be your friend. Because if it is, you're not a friend of God. That's plain Scripture. He that is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. How close do you get to that enemy? We better take dealing with sin very seriously. Fifthly, pray. 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 And then pray some more. Do you believe that you have strength within your own flesh to battle temptation and sin? Do you really think you have the wherewithal to do it? Well, you would say, well, no, I don't. But you know what will be the real gauge to that answer? Whether you feel you're self-sufficient or not. It will be this. It will be demonstrated by your prayer life. If you don't pray much, then you don't think much about sin and the power of it and the weakness of your own heart. If you don't give much thought in prayer about being not tempted and how that you need strength and you cry for help, then you don't think much about sin and you think a whole lot about yourself. Did not our Lord teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Just as the, what we call the model prayer of the Lord's Prayer. Right smack in the middle of it. Lead us not into temptation. Why? Because we need help from above. He said to his own disciples at a very crucial moment in his own life, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Remember he was in the garden? Just before he was given over to his enemies. And that's what he told us. He says, come watch with me. He's talking to three of them. Come watch with me. And what happened? They fell asleep. 
And he wakes him up, says, watch and pray that she enter not into temptation. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, exhorts the believers to not only to don on the armor of God, the whole armor of God, <clears throat> but he reminds them to do what? To pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. When you put on, brethren, the whole armor of God, don't forget to pray with all prayer and supplication. When you have your helmet on, when you have your breastplate on, when you have your weapon in your hand, don't forget to pray. Because you see, all of it will be of no avail if God doesn't help us. And as strong and as mighty as we think we are, it will not help us. All these means, as I get into one of my points, that's all they are, means. God is our helper. Sixthly, have a realization that when we sin, it is oftentimes with our bodies. It's not all the time. Oh, I guess in a real sense, we sin with our thinking. That's our brains. And I realize behind that's our souls, so don't get excited. But oftentimes, I'll just put it that way. Oftentimes, we sin with our bodies. And thus then, we need to keep a watch over. I mentioned a while ago about watching for our souls, watching our heart. And there I meant, of course, the spiritual. And I said also it includes everything about us. But we need to watch over our bodies. Look in Romans 6, if you would. And here's why I say it. Because Paul certainly drives us in that direction. He says in Romans 6, in verse 12, let not sin therefore reign where? In your mortal body. That you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Then look at verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so now, in the same way, yield your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. At one time we gave our thinking, we gave our ear, eyes, ears, no, wait, I get that right. We gave our ears, our eyes, our hands, to sin. We gladly laid them down before King Sin and we said, we'll serve you. Whatever you command me, that I'll do. I'll give you my hand. I'll give you my feet. I'll give you my eyes. I'll give you my ears. I'll give you my tongue. Whatever you desire, it is yours. Just give me the order and I'll go. That's what we did. Sinner, that's what you do now. You think you're your own person. You think you're the captain of your own salvation. You poor, deluded individual. You are a servant to sin. Every fiber of your being, from the head 
to the toe. You are a servant to iniquity. And yet you think you're reigning and in control. How foolish of you. And what you need is deliverance by Christ. But Christian, you see, that's what we once were. But no longer. The reign of sin has been broken in us. We've been translated from a a kingdom of darkness unto the kingdom of light. From where sin reigned to where Christ and righteousness reigns. And as we have switched masters, and just as we gave our our, our members over to that other master, he says here, even so now you give them to this new master, Christ and righteousness. Did you remember we read back a while ago from Proverbs how that he says, my son, what did he tell him to do? Be careful with your eyes. Be careful with your tongue. Be careful with your ears. Why? Because those are the things you sin with. Be careful. And let me give some very practical advice about this. And I know some of you won't heed it because you think it's silly. But get enough sleep. That's why you struggle just sitting in church. You don't go to bed at a decent hour at night. So how can remember the disciples? What happened to them in the midst of their temptation? They what? They fell asleep. Sleep's spiritual work. The Bible tells us in the Psalms, He giveth His beloved sleep. Sleep's from God. It's a grace. And when you're deprived of it, you're weaker. You give in. You're tempted. Say, well, that's pretty temporal and pretty carnal and that's dealing with physical matters. Well, what did I just say? You sin with the physical, don't you? You sin with your mind, your your feet, your hands, your eyes, your ears. And it takes... Sleep to cause those to function in a proper way. Another one is food and nourishment. You deprive your body of that, you lose your strength, you lose your willpower. It's like the glutton. Now, again, you can overdo this. You can either underdo it or overdo it. If you underdo it, you don't have the nourishment to fight. You're weak. So you give in. You overdo it. It's the same thing. Remember, I think it's Proverbs. Well, somewhere in Proverbs. It talks about the drunkard. And it talks about when he drinks too much, what happens to him? His inhibitions drop. And he gives himself over even to the sin that's found in our text, adultery and fornication. The wine dulls the senses. See, you can either underdo it or you can overdo it. Even exercise. And I know someone's going to quote that verse completely out of its context, but go ahead. Bodily exercise profiteth little. It had nothing to do with lifting weights, running, or anything like that. We're not to be sluggards because laziness not only affects whether you'll get an income or not, 
It also affects how well you fight against sin. Because once again, the idea of your body being strengthened because it's your body that you do use to sin and to work righteousness with. You can take it or you can leave that. But I'm telling you the truth. Go without sleep a couple days and let's see how long you last in the fight against sin. And then you can test whether I'm telling you the truth or not. Well, we are out of time. I have several pages left. What I'm going to do is stop. I was going to give this uh, at the end as probably as some help. But um, I don't want to close without mentioning the Lord Jesus. Not because I think we need to tag him in there somewhere. But my friend, he's the greatest help when it comes against fighting sin. Because he's the one who has delivered us from sin. One of the things, brethren, we need is faith. And that's why the man, when he came with his son to be healed, and Jesus said, well, if you believe, it'll happen. And he said, well, I believe, help thou my unbelief. So we are to believe and trust in Christ. We're going to get into next week how not only is it Christ, but it's the whole triune God that we look to. But in particular to Christ. Listen to this. This is Someone said this. And he says some things we ought to believe in the midst of temptation. He says, we are to believe that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered the sorrow of temptations so that he might purchase for us the blessing of succor in our temptation. Succor there meaning help. We are to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, conquering of temptations, conquered them not only for Himself, but for us. Even that we might have a share in the conquest. Remember, we are fellow heirs with Christ. And all that He purchased, He, and this is the correct way, by the way, of using the word share. I get so sick of how it's being used today. But when you share something, that means you give it away and it means you have it to give it. Christ shares His inheritance with us. So, brethren, we ought to believe that not only He suffered for our temptations and went through them Himself so that He would succor or help us, but we're to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, when He conquered His temptations with Satan, He did it for us as well. Just as He walked out all of our obedience and righteousness, did He not? Why is that suddenly excluded from it? Why do we want to remove when Christ withstood Satan and fought against Him to this temptation that that's not mine as well? And then lastly, He says, we're to believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for grace to be afforded unto us from the throne of grace to carry us through all of our temptations. I think he got that from Hebrews chapter 4. That we might boldly come to the throne of grace.
that we might find mercy or help and mercy in the time of need. Do we not need that, brethren, in the midst of temptation? Then believe He's sitting there willing and able to dispense all grace and all help to us. And then to the sinner, you may be saying, What are you talking about today? I'm talking about the difference between what a Christian is and what a lost, ungodly sinner man is. Who wars against his sin and who doesn't. Who gives in to temptation and one who fights and labors hard against it. A Christian does so. A non-believer doesn't. And so to the non-believer I'm addressing to you now, you need to repent before it's eternally too late. Don't think I've got tomorrow, I've got the next day, I've got the next day, I've got 20 years from now. You're not guaranteed another breath. Repent now and believe this gospel that we preach. That He delivers us from sin, its guilt, and its dominion through His death. Christ died for sinners. That's good news. Because that means we won't die eternally with Him. Let us believe that. Let you believe that. Give you grace to believe that.